Homeschool.com, America's leading source for homeschooling information, recorded this live interview as part of our free homeschooling teleconference series. If you would like to receive the schedule for upcoming teleconferences, please send an email to advisor at homeschool.com. Well, I look at the hour here and we're right on time. So, uh, callers, uh, welcome back. For this next hour, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Stephen Covey. Uh, Dr. Covey was recognized as Time Magazine's 25 Most Influential Americans. Uh, he is the author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, First Things First, Principles-Centered Leadership, and The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Families. So today, Dr. Covey, uh, would like to speak with you, uh, giving some advice about how we can be better parents and uh, raise um, a more loving, closer family. So thank right. you very much for being with us. Well, I'm honored to participate. I appreciate it very much. I'm just reading your book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Families, and I'm, I'm getting so much out of it and so many uh, great ideas. I like the idea of having a family mission statement. Can you tell us uh, why you think this is important and how we can create one for our own family? Okay. Um, first of all, every decision we make is ultimately governed by some kind of uh, interest or goal or objective or value or principle, whether we know it or not. And um, a family mission statement is an effort to bring to an explicit level what those values and goals are so that people are on the same page. And I have never found anything as powerful in creating family harmony and uh, unity and also to help a family move from what I call from success to significance where the family is focused on contribution and service to other families and to their community and so forth. And uh, the process of developing one is as important as the product itself because it involves a great deal of patience and empathy and time, uh, but it's a very fun process and it's very powerful in in getting people to emotionally connect with the values that are eventually produced. Ours took over eight months to produce, and we met weekly uh, on the issue and just getting everyone involved. We have a large family, so we wanted to make sure that every person felt deeply respected and that their ideas and feelings about what's really important are honored. And little by little... Uh, it evolved over time until there was such an emotional buy-in to it and a connection to it that it almost created a self-governing family. And even though everyone is kind of doing their own thing from time to time, there is something at the bottom that unites us. And uh, we have nine children, and now we have 44 grandchildren, and three more on the way. So we're interested in an intergenerational approach so that the culture of the family itself is very committed to a common vision and mission and a set of values. Can you give us an example of, of a family mission statement? Well, um, there are so many. Uh, I'll, I'll share the one that we came up with. The mission of our family is to create a nurturing place of faith, order, truth, love, happiness, and relaxation, and provide opportunity for every person to become responsibly independent and effectively interdependent in order to serve worthy purposes in society. 
then we add our own particular religious conviction through understanding and living the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's about 40 words, and it um, deals with four areas. One, the characteristics of the home. And then two, the effect upon the individuals to become responsibly independent and effectively interdependent. And then the effort to be a family of significance, that is to focus on service and contribution. And then the source of the power as we see it. You worked um, for eight months in putting this together. You and your wife didn't say, okay, this is our mission statement, kids, you know, now follow it. I think that that is a real mistake to do that. Unless children are very little, if they are very little, they'll identify with what the parents come up with. But if they're seven, eight, nine, and particularly if they get into the teenage period, they must feel that they helped produce it. So you held um, a weekly meeting. How did you um, bring this up to your family that you wanted to come up with a mission statement? How did you explain to them how you thought it would be helpful to your family? We didn't even use those words. All we would talk about is what's important to you. What kind of a home do you love bringing your friends home to? And, And then by just carrying on kind of an informal discussion, sometimes just at dinner, uh, we would gradually begin to distill, and the kids gradually started to see that this thing was taking form and shape. And so we brought out a big poster paper and wrote down the different values that people had, what makes you most happy. One said, when I have a lot of time with uh, one-on-one with my parents or with either parent or another one would say when I feel supported at school in our activities and then uh, one time I was working with one family and they came up with what they call the family poster and that represented their mission statement and they had everyone take magazines and cut out pictures that represented what they wanted their family to be like and one had a picture of a father and a son on a on an outing a camping trip that meant so much to that boy and so that was put on the poster which symbolized the value of having one-on-one time with the parents and another one came up with a picture of parents watching a child in a school performance and that meant that we support each other's activities. And this is all part of interdependence. Most people value independence because they can kind of do their own thing. But a family is an interdependent culture. And the more you can get kids to buy into the concept of interdependency, you have essentially resolved like 90% of the issues and challenges and problems that come to a family. And it creates a friendship among the siblings that is emotionally generated because they feel like my sister or my brother is my best friend and we we do care for each other, we support each other and things of this nature. One time I had a son that was the very prominent person in the community. He was the starting quarterback of a major university and and he would come to his little sisters music recitals because that was part of the agreement that we made that we support each other and Sandra and I have committed that either one of us or both of us would be at over 80% of all the significant events so we have to do long range calendaring to come up with what those significant events are with the children sometimes I'm away traveling or something or but that represents kind of the 20%. And oftentimes, Sandra will just stay home rather than go with me just so that she can be supportive to those children's events. Right. I like that. So when you're discussing it with your children, you just kind of ask questions like, um, what type of family do you want to have? Uh, right. What type of you know house do you like to return to? Uh-huh. What, what's important to you? Can you give us some um, some more questions? Well, to kind of nice job with it. You, you you learn to empathize more than ask questions. You may start with an open-ended question, but the moment you sense they begin to talk, then you get into their mind and heart and reflect what they're saying. The skill of how to do this is 
very important because most parents have never been trained how to listen. They have had training in how to read, write, and speak, but very few people, more no more than 1% or 2% of the population have had training in how to listen. Most people listen within their own frame of reference, and they're always inwardly kind of preparing their reply or they're evaluating one way or another. But to really get into the head and heart of another, what I call Indian talking stick communication, where you cannot make your point until you restate the other person's point to his or her satisfaction. As you sense what people are really feeling inside, you listen with your eyes more than your ears, and then you reflect back. The moment they sense that you're truly authentic, they get more open and real with you. Intimate communication means into me see. And they'll reach a level of communication that is so much more authentic than they even have with their friends. And when that begins to happen, there's a level of bonding that is almost indescribable. And this happens inside a family, and particularly if your goal is to produce a value system and a vision and a mission of what your family is about. You don't have to use mission statement necessarily or the words values. You can use any word that you want to. I had someone the other day that I was teaching, they call it their family credo or their motto. One was no empty chairs, meaning that everyone is there for everyone else. Another friend of mine came up with one that I liked very much uh, called Circle of the Summit. They were all mountain climbers and the summit was kind of a physical metaphor of going to the top together. And so they had a picture of all of them at the top of a mountain holding each other's hands and that meant that's how we stay together and there's no one left out. No one is considered unimportant to the family. So people do it differently. And one time I had a friend who's a, who's a uh, doctor down in Reno and he took his family to Hawaii to develop a family mission statement. It was his 50th birthday and they didn't want to do any of this kind of stuff. They thought it was a waste. They just wanted to go out and lollygag on the beaches and have fun. And he said, yeah, okay, we'll do that too, but let's just humor me. It's my birthday. And so they did, and they got together. Within three nights, they were so involved and consumed in the discussion of this family mission statement that it was almost scary to the parents because they started to realize, I'm going to be accountable to this as well in our family councils. Because they put it up in front and you discuss it regularly. That's the key to making these mission statements live is that they're constantly being discussed at least once a week to see how well the family is living up to it. And when the parents came home, I talked to the gentleman and he said to me, you know, Stephen, we don't even have to have tenders, Harvey. We do for the real little ones. But this mission statement process was so powerful that it's almost as if that they will govern themselves by these values because they produced it and they are emotionally connected to it and they see the wisdom behind it. And it is amazing how children will identify with it if they feel like they have genuinely been involved and if the parents don't try to be efficient and drive it home, you know, through some arbitrary or unilateral process unless the kids are real little. You know, I like this, too, because so many times with my children, we'll see a, 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 a young rock star, you know, like a Britney Spears or someone like that, where they suddenly they turn 20 and they're having a hard time. You know, so I know with my girls, I will discuss, I'll say, you know, one of the reasons they're having a hard time is because they just don't know what their values are. And you've got you've to have a strong base of what your values are that takes you, you know, through all, the, all of the ages. I think by having a mission statement, too, it really makes you think about what's important to you and what your values are. It does. It also humbles you so that you're not so starstruck and so overawed and you don't get your definition from the social mirror. And most people do. Their sense of identity literally comes from the social mirror and that is how other people see them or how their friends judge them and evaluate them and and uh, they often judge themselves based on how good looking they are or how fashionable they are and then they make constant comparisons. When we found the mirror, we began to lose our soul. That's why the power of the mission statement is so significant, because you produce your own form of a mirror. And the key to your 
security and the key to your courage is your integrity to those values. And that becomes so much more important than popularity and being compared to someone else or being better looking than someone else or more fashionable than someone else. I really like uh, in your book when you talk about the emotional bank account. Uh, that, that has been so helpful. That simple idea is really helping my husband and I be better parents, and it's really um, helping my children and I talk to each other. You know, I, like my daughter borrowed my uh, robe without asking last night and then left it piled on a, a wad on her bedroom floor. And we were talking about it and just kind of joking. I said, now, would that be a deposit in our emotional bank account or would that be a withdrawal? <laughs> can you talk some more about this idea and how we can apply it to help our families be stronger? Well, I find it's a, a very helpful metaphor because it's like a, a financial bank account into which you make deposits and take withdrawals and that you can use it in your family councils and in your family meetings to discuss what are deposits and what are withdrawals from each other. And you'll almost find that the universal deposit is that you must understand what deposits and withdrawals are to the other person. You cannot assume that what a deposit is to you is to another. In fact, what is important to another person must become as important to you as the other person is to you. Otherwise, you're not going to be making the kinds of deposits into their emotional bank account, which builds the confidence and the bonding and the trust that you want to do because you're operating too much from your own frame of reference and from certain kind of formula success ideas about how to raise kids successfully. The key about is, um, the words out of our mouth. I love you had a, a page in your book where you said, okay, here's the typical day for how a parent talks to a teenager. <laughs> it was a list of about 15 to 20 and they were all criticisms. They were like, uh, you know, you better hurry up or you're going to be late again. You know, I, I told you, you've got to get better about brushing your teeth and washing your face. It was just, you know, one harangue after another. And, of course, those would all be withdrawals from the, the bank account between that parent and the child. Right. And I really like the idea of catching them being good and that, you know, eight out of the ten things out of our mouths really should be positive. And if we have something critical, you know, making sure that it's being said really kindly so that it isn't a withdrawal. Mm-hmm. I think that the, the the best definition of parenting is to communicate your children's worth and potential so clearly they come to see it in themselves. I like that. In your book, too, you give examples of apologizing to your children. Right. Why do you think this is so important? What it does is it legitimizes the right for you to change yourself and to you model that you are not perfect and that you make mistakes and that you're sorry. And, um, in fact, I would say about in the book that you're talking about, oh, about a fifth of the stories are about my family and about half of those are my apologizing for violating the very things I'm talking about even now. And uh, one time I was writing a chapter on patience and I could feel that three boys out in the hall running up and down and banging against the hall and I could feel my own patience going down right as I was writing about it <laughs> and so eventually I lost it and because the noise became so loud and and uh, yelling and so forth so I went out in the hall and there I saw my son David he was bleeding from the mouth and they were playing tackle football in a, in a in a uh, little hall that was about three and a half feet wide. And they were having a ball. But then he got an elbow accidentally, and he was uh, he was bleeding from the mouth. And I began to see the situation. I'd never really understood what was going on. I just sat kind of judging them in my mind's eye while they were making all of this noise. And it was a very healthy, fun activity, playing tackle football in this little hallway. So, But anyway... It wasn't until I, well, I sent him into their room before I even appraised what was going on. I said, right, you go into your room, you behave yourself. You know how hard it is to try to write and I'm trying to concentrate on all this noise and banging around. What's going on anyway? That's when I began to sense it. And anyway, I wanted to apologize to my son, Stephen. He's the first one to apologize to. And just as I walked in the room, he said, I won't forgive you. 
Honey, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize you were just playing football out there, and David got hurt. I really am sorry. I didn't mean to. And he said, "I said, why won't you forgive me?" And he said, "Because you apologized yesterday." <laughs> In other words, I've had it with all these apologies. Why don't you just change your behavior? <laughs> and I said, "Well, I'll probably blow it again." And I'm so sorry. I'm you know, so I do believe that apologies literally liberate you to be a human being and they see you as a growing, developing person. You're legitimatized to, to make a change and they also learn to apologize to each other. And recognize that no one's perfect, that we all make mistakes. Exactly. <laughs> you don't think it weakens us with our parenting then? I think it does the opposite. I think you, it literally strengthens us. They see us as growing persons and you tell them. I myself, I have a struggle sometimes with some of the values that we've agreed to. Let me tell you an experience I had, and it makes it legitimate. Then they open up and tell an experience. If you set yourself up as a paragon of perfection, they know it's not the case because they see hypocrisies from time to time. And then they think, you know, there's this kind of double standard works in life. In other words, I see my parents saying things on the phone or they're, interacting with people in politically correct ways, even though they don't use those words necessarily, but they don't really mean it. They see insincerity. I just think it's a mistake. One time I was running out and of the house, and I knew that if I had to say goodbye to my little ones, the little teenies, I'd have to spend a half an hour with them, and I was in such a rush, so I said to the girls as I ran out, Don't tell Joshua I'm going. You know, and then I got out into the car and I realized, what did I just do? I just modeled to my daughters. Speaking out. Yeah. And uh, so I had to go back in and said, that was wrong of me to do that. I'm sorry. I'm going to go and say goodbye to Joshua. <laughs> Parenting is such a challenge, isn't it? Oh, it is. I think that really it's the greatest growth process there is in life and none of us have been really trained for it except through the way that we were modeled in our own upbringing and often that was inconsistent and and uh, sometimes very negative so to really take charge of your own life and to pause and to train yourself to pause between whatever happens to you and your response and then to think about your values and to make a wiser decision and when you make a mistake to admit it, apologize, and move on. It just occurred to me that we've been talking about the emotional bank account, as, um, assuming that everyone has already read the book. But let's talk about it. Uh, tell us a little bit more about what this is. About the emotional bank account? Yes. There was, um, it's such a powerful metaphor. Paint a picture for us, would you please, as to what is an emotional bank uh, account between two people, between a parent and a child? And um, what are, give some examples of what are deposits and what are withdrawals. Okay. Um, I think always the first deposit into this emotional bank account is empathy. It's to understand what, an, what a deposit is to another person. Another key deposit is always keep your promises. And when you use the word, I promise, be, use it very wisely and very carefully. If you ever break it, they begin to question your basic integrity, whether they can really trust you or not. Another one is to always be loyal to those who are not present. So that, kind of like I did with that little boy when I ran out, I had to be loyal to him when he was not present. Because the people who are present will know you'll be loyal to them when they are not present, that your love is truly unconditional. The key to the many is how you treat the one who is not present. It's a very important principle. Otherwise, uh, your hypocrisy will gradually surface and it will train the children to do the same thing with their friends and with each other. Another tremendously important deposit is to um, treat people with kindness, to use words like please and thank you, words of respect, and to... Avoid the tendency to, you know, get caustic and to label people or to stereotype them. Because all that does is tend to congeal inside yourself 
a kind of an image of a person and then you'll find yourself treating people according to that image and they'll live up to it and then you have what's called a codependent relationship where your own perception of them kind of justifies their behavior and their perception back of you. They're living up to negative expectations instead of positive expectations. Right. Expectations is awfully important too that you um, manage them up front very clearly so that because you'll find it at the bottom of most problems are ambiguous or confused expectations where they feel they have been violated later on. That's why it's very important to say, now, as we go on this little outing that we're going to have together, let's get a clear understanding of what we're, what, what we're going to do, what we're not going to do, and, you know, what the rules are that we've agreed to, just so the expectations are very clear. Because most problems come from either ambiguous or violated expectations. So managing expectations is a huge deposit. So the, the idea emotional. is that in any relationship you have with another person, it's like there's an emotional bank account between the two of you. And when you say kind things and do uh, kind things, and when you keep your word, um, you are, are it's a deposit into that, that person's bank account. And if you uh, show up late or you forget an appointment or you don't keep your word or you yell out in anger, then it's in a withdrawal. I noticed from my, um, my daughter, my... Um, she said, every time I talk to Dad, all he's doing is talking about cleaning or criticizing me about cleaning. Mm-hmm. And we realized, oh, I said, honey, you, you've bankrupt your account with her. I better handle the cleaning issues from now on, and now you're just going to have to you know, build that back up. Right. By, uh, saying some nice things, catching her when she has done the cleaning, complimenting her on having her bed made and all of that, because they need to kind of repair the relationship and build that back up again. Right, and also apologizing for the mistakes of the past. Um, I want to talk to you, too, about, you talk about the importance of putting first things first. What right. are these first things? What do you mean? Well, that, the first things are the things you come up with in your mission statement work and the goals that flow from them. Those are the first things. Most people literally do not put first things first. They'll put second things first. They'll, they'll focus on their work when they say we really value family most. And they'll focus upon... Uh, they'll neglect their health often. They'll neglect their integrity. Now, those are first things. They'll neglect their deepest values, all in the name of social pressure. And or that's time. why the ability to say no to the second things is the key to saying yes to the first things. You have to have a burning sense of yes about the first things. That's why there must be emotional engagement over time in developing the value system of the family because those become first things. But you know what happens? They get such social courage when they live that way. So it's not hard to say no. You can say no pleasantly and uh, cheerfully and smilingly. But most people, when they haven't decided what the first things are, they cannot say no to social expectations and so forth because... They just feel like, oh, I'm going to risk my relationship with them. And so they, if they do say no, they're guilt-tripped and they feel bad about it. And, and it just kind of demeans them. So, for example, uh, health is one of your top values, so you schedule time to exercise. Right, and, and to, to exercise with the family. With your children, so you schedule and you follow through and you take special dates with each of your children and you schedule and you take time for family time. Right, so the, that means you have to do long-term planning. Most people don't do long-term planning. That's why second things come first. But if you do long-term planning and you keep your calendar clear so that family comes first and that you mean it, we get together once a week for a family meeting, and no one misses. If they miss, they have to get permission of the group and give the justification. No phone call, no homework, no friends. Nothing is admitted into that special family time. And little by little, over time, children growing up saying, family is where it's at. And callers, you hear Dr. Covey talking about a calendaring. I don't know if you know it, but in the malls, when you see the Franklin Covey store, this is the Covey side of it. 
So uh, congratulations on that merger as well, Dr. Covey. Are, right. Are, that's are that's kind of a practical way of making it happen. I also think I also think it's important that you do uh, the shortest unit of planning should be a week, not a day. Now, I admit, you have to make adaptations on a daily basis because of things that can come up. But if you do it on a week basis, you can write down what are the key roles of your life and the goals you want to accomplish. For instance, my number one role is my relationship to God. My number two role is my relationship to my wife and my children. My number three role then gets into my service to others. My number four role is work. Number five role is involving, say, friends. See, and then you think, okay, now this week, how am I going to honor my roles to all of these different and these different people? And so you write down a goal to be accomplished. Most people get into a crisis mode of doing daily planning. And I'm telling you, if you do daily planning, you're going to end up putting second things first. And first things second, and then eventually you'll come to regret it. And you won't bond with your kids like you otherwise should. And I'll tell you, no one on their deathbed wished they'd spent more time at the office or watching television or going to socials. What they care about, and I've studied the death of the research, is their loved ones. In your list, I didn't hear you mention kind of time for yourself, for recharging and taking care of yourself. Where do you include that? I think that's very, very important. That's habit seven, that you have time for yourself, for meditation, for reading, for exercise, and for getting into nature just so that you can... Renew your own batteries. I think that that is very important. I'm glad you brought that up. In addition to making a a family mission statement, I also like the idea of creating an educational mission statement. Can you guide us through some steps that can help us discover what our educational philosophy is? Well, there's four parts of our nature. Say that again? There's four parts to our nature, our body, our mind, our heart, and our spirit. Yes. So for the body, you want to take good care of that. So for the mind, you want to get into an ethic of constant education and that there's discipline and accountability and social support that are all involved in this process and that the education involves leaving your comfort zone and learning fields that you may have no interest in at all. The key, and I think one of the fundamental things about um, the concept of homeschooling is to have the children teach each other and to teach the parents what they themselves are learning. When you teach, you learn twice. And if you teach, uh, for instance, the older child teaches the younger child a particular subject, or a child may teach the parent a particular subject, even though the parent directed the initial learning process. The key is to have them teach The more they do that, the less their interest in the subject matters because what matters is that they're actually learning and it creates a learning ethic in the family culture. So that's the, that's the, I call them to live, to love, to learn, to leave a legacy. Those are the four areas of a family mission statement. To live, that is the physical economic, to love, the quality of the relationships, to learn the educational ethic, and to leave a legacy. That means to serve and to contribute, to matter, so that you tap into the spiritual needs of people as well as their mental and emotional and physical needs. In your book, um, you write about how today's culture is not very family-friendly. What can we do to counter this? I think that um, by attending to all four areas on a consistent, regular basis so that there is a lot of fun in the family, so that people enjoy each other, that you invite friends over to have fun, and you get to know your children's friends, and that you gradually get cousins or adopted cousins, other neighbors or people that you care a lot about, 
you try to involve grandparents. Grandparents can play a tremendously significant role. Sandra and I get very involved with each of our grandchildren, and that means we have to do long-range planning when you have this large of a family. And you have to get to know them and to learn to listen to them and to remember their special events and their key achievements, but above all, to listen to them so that they sense, hey, I'm valued independent of anything that I do just because of who I am. I am listened to, and my grandfather and my grandmother care. So, And same thing with aunts and uncles. So the more you develop an intergenerational, three- and four-generation four family, that becomes your culture rather than getting seduced by all of these destructive influences that are pervading the wider social culture, driven mostly by entertainment and by um, evil things like pornography, which I think is the drug of the 21st century and is so devastating to people's minds and hearts, far beyond what most people have any idea of. And to avoid um, duplicity and hypocrisies, and but they're par- paraded in front of us, in front of the media constantly. And the way we got rid of television in our family is that I just showed data to the children at one of these family meetings from good hard research data and I said these are the impact of constant television viewing on learning on relationships on family cultures on physical um, exercise on diet these are the fruits of these things now you kids you decide what you want to do mom and I will sustain your decisions. We literally walked out of the room. They said, oh, we know what you're trying to do. You're trying to get rid of television. You're always on our backs about to No, <laughs> we, we will sustain your decisions. Just look at the data. And after about two hours, and you can hear a lot of hot discussions taking in the place in there, they agreed to one hour a day per person for a week. That's seven hours a week total. And that Maria was identified as the enforcer. So that anyone, that, and it was all based on the honor code, that violated that seven hours a week, told Maria, and they had to lose all television privileges for a period of a month. And literally, the net effect of this is that we hardly had any television on school nights. They would watch a movie and a basketball or football game usually on the weekends and that was about it and then we had our kids teach us regularly what they were learning in each of their classes oh. and that consumed most of our evenings our school nights you're talking about uh, television i live here in california and governor schwarzenegger his children uh, do not watch tv during the week yeah. even though he's a movie star his children aren't allowed to watch television except on the weekends right you know you're talking uh, you're the the king of win-win can you uh, really go act, uh, think and act win-win with our children? Absolutely. Now, that doesn't mean that all decisions are win-win. The key is that the relationship is win-win because as a parent, based on your experience and wisdom, you may make some decisions they don't like, such as the one you just mentioned about Governor Schwarzenegger and his wife Maria, not allowing any television on school nights. That, could, that may have been a very unpopular decision. That was, They would call that a win-lose decision. But the way it was announced to them, the way it was explained, the kindness that was shown so that the relationship was always win-win, even though the decision may not have been win-win in the short run. In the long run, They'll probably see it as a win-win decision. But little kids often and teenagers often will not see all decisions as win-win. Just don't lose your cool and become impatient and then start making judgments and stereotyping them in a particular way. I remember with I was teaching IBM executives up in Armonk, New York one time talking about the self-fulfilling prophecies of how people see themselves. And we had a son that was 
kind of out of it socially, athletically, academically, and it was embarrassing. And so I said to myself, physician, heal thyself. Maybe the problem is not your boy, but the perception you have of your son based on his behavior. And maybe he's a late bloomer. Maybe you don't spend the time to listen to him. So I called up Sandra and I told her my this kind of epiphany. I came home and talked to her about it. And she agreed. We both worked diligently to build a one-on-one relationship with this boy and to stop judging him. But you know what the toughest part of what we had to go through is our own motives. We had to change our motive. We found that our motive was to win kind of public acceptance based on our kids' good behavior. And the more we thought about that motive, it was so inconsistent with our value, which is children are supremely important, not other people's opinions of us. And love your children for who they are and helping them discover their own talents. Right. That's exactly right. I'll tell you, that, that is, well, we started doing this with this boy and it was just amazing to see the effect that it had upon him. But the interesting thing was, since we changed our motives, that effect didn't matter any different, didn't make any difference to us. Because we just loved him unconditionally. And he started to grow and to flourish in every dimension. And he brought home one time a report card which was straight A plus with one A on it. And his brother said to him, whose is this? I said, well, that's your brother. Oh, no. You know, because he could hardly even take a test. And, but he just, I'm glad we learned that early because it taught us to do the same thing with all of the other children. Those positive expectations, it reminds me of the study in the classroom where first the teacher was told that, you know, these students, these five students were really, really bright. And suddenly they became, you know, A students and they had higher expectations. And then the next time I said, oh, no, no, that was a mistake. It was these five students are the ones that are really, really bright. And suddenly the teacher changed their behavior, and then those five students, suddenly their grades were better and they were achieving more. Right. Self-fulfilling prophecy and having high expectations. Goethe put it this way, treat a man as he is, he will remain as he is. Treat a man as he can and should be, and he will become as he can and should be. Like that. Hey, Dr. Covey, for this last ten minutes, um, do you mind, how about if we give you some specific uh, parenting challenges i'll go i'll go first and be brave and then we can open up the call and that way our um our callers can kind of give you some parenting challenges that perhaps they're having and see what i'd love find. that oh, and i'll okay. try to give shorter answers <laughs> okay so i'll i will um i'll be brave and i will go first and uh callers don't be shy because these kind of questions and answers will just make the call richer Okay, I, um, you were talking about uh, being loyal to those who are not present. Right. Uh, my seventh grade daughters got in the habit of uh, flippantly saying mean things and talking about others behind their back. Uh, how can I help her break that habit? What I did last Sunday is I had a group of grandchildren together, and I had them that kind of situation you just described where they're dealing with people who say mean things, and literally we role-played what we could do consistent with our values. So that even though people are mean to you, you are kind back. You return unkindness with kindness. So we would role play them, and I would try to get the kids to be really mean, and and to see if the person could be kind back to that person. And by just role playing and practicing it, they achieved it and got a tremendous sense of satisfaction that. I'm not a product of other people's treatments of me. But uh, now that's if somebody else is being um, mean about you. What about if my daughter's case where she's the one dishing out the meanness? Discuss it. Get to know what, oh, how she feels inside herself And about I think that. just kind of trying to be funny and kind of like a sense of humor. And like you said, you pick this up so much in movies. Mean, it's very popular to be mean right now. Right. You know, radio disc jockeys in the movies, all this kind of passive-aggressive stuff. It's just so unpleasant. It is. And you can say, is that congruent with our values that we are great upon in our family? Especially, I like the idea of loyalty, too. 
because, I mean, children, I think, are naturally attracted to that whole idea of loyalty. They know how important it is. They are. And the idea of being loyal to somebody even when they're not there in the group. Right. And okay, you know what? About... Just to those who are present, you'll do the same thing toward me when I'm not here. Plus, it's such a trust thing, too. We all learn that. If someone's talking about someone else behind their back, you just kind of worry that they're going to talk about you behind exactly. your back, too. Right. Uh, you were talking about uh, your son. I have a son who's almost 15, and he's just um, one of the nicest kids I know, one of the nicest kids on the planet. But uh, he tends to be more of an introvert, whereas the rest of the family, we all tend to be very outgoing. And uh, I know that sometimes I, I worry, you know, I, I, how can I help him develop uh, good people skills, make sure he has good people skills, while still, you know, honoring him for, you know, who he is and the type of person that he already is. I would take him on dates and listen to him. I would stop trying to clone him. I'd stop trying to tell him to get more socially active and involved and to develop skills. I would let your skills model. But primarily, I would take him on dates where he's alone and he does his agenda with you and then you listen to him. Little by little, you will find over a period of a few weeks, he'll become more courageous inwardly and will... Like, and should I be worried? His sister has lots of friends, uh, but he has a couple of really close friends. I mean, everybody doesn't have to have lots of friends. Exactly. And you want to be careful you avoid any form of comparison, even privately, because it'll communicate. Comparisons are odious. And that's the world's culture. It's based on comparisons. And that's why when people find the mirror, they begin to lose their soul. They become more concerned with their image than with their self. And but you're interested. Let's open up the call. Okay. Uh, callers, there are a lot of people on the line. So if you would, uh, please uh, mute out your phone. You can either use the mute button on your telephone or you can press star six. So press star six now to mute out your telephone. And then when you have a question, you just you press star six, come out, ask your question, and then I will repeat your question so that Dr. Covey can hear it completely and so that we can have a clean recording. So uh, go ahead, please, share your stories of your children and your concerns and fears and hopes and um, such a special time with Dr. Covey. Go ahead and take advantage of it. Here we go. Thank you, callers. First question, please, for Dr. Stephen Covey. Uh, thank you. I can hear you. You have a, a, asked some parenting advice to one of the 25 most influential people in America. <laughs> kind of intimidating, I know. Okay, I'd like to start. Yes, go ahead and thank you. Over with. <laughs> um, I'll take myself out of speaker. Um, I have, I'm actually a single parent with three children, 11, almost 12 years old and younger, and I'm doing this on my own, and I have felt, there's a couple of things here, but I have felt such, like such a failure at times because I have lost it, and I apologize, and they know how human I am. But then they see me losing it again and apologizing again. I could really relate to that scenario you gave. <laughs> and I know that change is possible, so I'd like um, to thank you for that comment that you had made earlier. But as a single parent, finding balance in all of these <laughs> areas is um, hard, but I know it's doable, and I just wondered if you could share a little bit of insight on that, maybe. I would say this. First of all, you're my hero. Single parents are my heroes because they have such a challenge, and they have such a unique kind of opportunity as well. And I would say this, that take time for yourself and long-term planning. And there's two ways to program your subconscious mind. One is visualizing. The other is writing. So if you have a tendency under certain circumstances to lose it, see yourself in your mind's eye when you're very quiet, when you're in a meditative or a prayerful state of mind, behaving in a wise way in the most difficult circumstance so that your kids can't hit your hot button and feel justified for their misbehavior. And then also learn to write. Before you go to bed, write down what your response will be to, say, different, a different challenge that you know you're going to face tomorrow. 
you'll find that both of those processes, visualizing and writing, will program your subconscious mind, and you'll little by little gradually become like you think is wise. I like that idea, Dr. Covey. In other words, you know it's like the cleaning issue is going to come up or the being mean or the fussing with the brothers and sisters is going to come up. So in advance, you plan what your response is going to be. Exactly. And if you find yourself losing it, train yourself to walk out. And if you do lose it, learn to apologize. Right, okay. And one one other thing. So I, I what I understand from your last couple of your last comments was taking time to have a one-on-one with maybe a child that, with my challenging child, <laughs> have more one-on-ones with him maybe. Right, and particularly where you have two ears and one mouth and you use them accordingly. Right. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Covey, a lot of the strife in our family comes having to do with cleaning issues. Um, in other words, my... Um, I don't want to say my husband's a clean freak, but he certainly uh, needs the house to be uh, cleaner than the rest of us do. And it seems that he's always kind of uh, fussing with the kids about, um, you know, who left this bowl out and go clean your room. You know, what would be a healthier response to this? Is it is it that important to have the house clean? I guess we have to I, think, I think you and your house. husband have to have deep Indian talking stick communication on that issue so that you come to what you believe would be truly win-win for the entire family culture. And it's not win-lose where he just gets his way and not lose-win where he feels like there's no cleanliness. Maybe the agreement would be that you, by the end of the day, things are clean. But in the middle of the day, they may be a little messy. So we should talk about that as a family with understanding and kindness that, you know, Dad's more comfortable having it cleaner and then, um, or do we really want to have this kind of strife and then come up with a plan, an agreement? Right. I'd see it. So I'd say it would start with you and your husband just separate from the kids and then to discuss what you have agreed upon with, among yourself to see how the children feel about it and whether they would buy into this value. Okay, thank you. Next question, please. Hi, caller. Yes, I can hear. I can hear that you're trying to come down into the line. Don't be shy. I know. I, I know we all have parenting issues, so be brave and share some of your concerns and your questions. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Go ahead. Okay. I. I don't. I came to the call late, so you may have addressed this issue already. But um, does Dr. Covey have any feeling about family meetings? I do. I think you should, I think you should have at least one night a week for the family alone. And in that night, have discussed values for part of it, have, uh, refreshments, have fun activities, have people share their talents, and also have accountability. Those five areas. And if you'll do that consistently, even if it only lasts for an hour or an hour and a half, it will impact the quality of almost everything else that takes place in that family. If you're inconsistent and you just kind of set it up for the moment, kids will realize this thing doesn't have any real sustainability to it and they'll feel like I'd rather talk to my friends or do my homework or something like this. They'll always come up with reasons. You just set it up that, say, Wednesday night is family game night. And that, you know, everyone, you know, mom, dad, everyone uh, just prioritizes this and puts it on their calendar and no excuses for missing it. And then you make it fun. Is that right? Right. Uh, and that you have um, everyone take parts in directing the different activities. For instance, someone will teach values. Someone will teach, will carry on the talent. Someone will prepare the refreshments. Someone oh. will have the fam activity. And you kind of take these wheels and just keep moving them around so that different people do different things. How do you, how important do you um, think family dinners are? I think they're very important and they're tending to, they're tending to go by the way because of all of the different schedules, conflicting things and you just have to really work at it to make sure that you have more and more regular family dinners. I look on the family table almost like an altar, like a religious altar that is sacred 
and that it gives an opportunity for everyone to talk about what's important to them. And I find that it's good to ask, what did you learn today? Or what was exciting to you today? And then to listen to them. They gradually get to like it and to find that it's fun. It's not just my parents preaching to me or judging me. And that I really think it's vital. And if you're only doing it once a week, do it twice, then three times, then four times, to where you cultivate a habit of regular family dinners. I know in our own family, um, part of the challenge in having a family dinner had to do with food. Uh, because the kids were, you know, needing to eat earlier, um, before my husband could make it home from work. Right. So what we did is we thought, gosh, it doesn't, it's not really about the food. It's about us, um, spending time together. So now, um, no matter how late it is, we just make sure we get together to play a bingo or, you know, do something fun around the table together. And some people may be eating and other people may not, but at least we're having that time together. Exactly. Do you think that that's fine? I, I like that idea. You're adapting to the reality of your situation. I had a son that had to go real early. We always had what we call morning devotionals where we would read the scripture and then discuss it. And so he had to go real early. I just got up and did it just the two of us together. And the rest did it when they got up. Oh, I'm, gl- I'm glad because I'm still honoring our, our health value and everybody's eating healthy but recognizing that it was really the time together that we wanted. Exactly. Let's I open like it up and take another question. Callers, we have time for one last question. I have a question. Yes, go ahead. We can hear you. Okay. Um, thank you, Dr. Covey. I really appreciate the time that you're giving us today. And um, my question has to do with you just mentioned somebody teaching, uh, one, of the, one of the family members taking time to teach values during your family time. And I'm, I'm not actually sure exactly what you mean by that and, Obviously, that would be have to be age appropriate. Could you okay. say something more about that? For instance, take Dr. the. Let me repeat that question since we had so much noise. Okay. You'd mentioned how important it is and valued it is to have one of the children uh, teaching values. What do you mean by that? And how well, do you feel about that? For instance, take the value of honesty. Maybe one of the children could teach what does honesty mean to you at school? And then that child would be responsible to teach that for maybe 10 minutes and have an exercise showing what honesty means, why there's a lot of pressure to do well on tests and you don't cheat, or that you're honest in your response to your teacher or to your parent about did you do such and such or did you slough school and that you're honest and that you avoid cover-ups. And that, that, because it's always the second mistake that gets people in trouble, not the first one. It's when they will not acknowledge the first one and apologize. That's what gets people into the big problems. So that would be an illustration. Another one would be cleanliness or order. Any value that the family comes up with, then you have your children, maybe you have three children, you say, who would like to teach this next in our next family meeting? that we hold on Sunday afternoon or on Wednesday night or whatever. Who would like to teach this? Who would like to do the refreshments? Who would like to? Then you take a wheel and gradually shift it around. Now, it'll be hard initially. Just hang in there. Be patient and be pleasant and don't overreact to mistakes. And learn to smile a lot, to take time to pause and to communicate a smile back. Just see that 80% of your interactions are uplifting and affirming and believing in them, and that only 20% involves evaluation or correction and discipline. Discipline is based on disciplined life, a discipled life. It's not based on punishment. When you punish people, they feel justified when they have paid their dues. But when you use discipline and they know what the upfront agreement was and they apply it to themselves, then they gradually learn. They become disciples to the value system or to its ultimate source. Thank you very much for your time today, Dr. Covey. We sure appreciate it. We're very honored with your participation. Well, I'm thrilled to be with you and I admire what you're doing very much. We're going to open up the call in just a minute so that everyone can say a goodbye and thank you to you. Thank you. Speaking with Dr. Stephen Covey, author of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, First Things First, Principle-Centered Leadership, and the Seven Habits of Highly Effective Families. 
Uh, coming up next, we're going to be speaking with Oliver DeMille. Uh, he is the author of A Thomas Jefferson Education. In fact, he has his fan club on the uh, call here today from Canada. So if you will, please unmute your phone, press star six, and uh, join me in saying uh, goodbye and thank you to Dr. Stephen Covey. Goodbye, Thank you, Dr. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Bye. We hope you have enjoyed this special presentation from homeschool.com. For a copy of this program or any homeschool.com program, visit our website at www.homeschool.com. At homeschool.com, you'll find the information, resources, and support you need to make your homeschooling better than ever. Let's go.